again. Welcome to Sulphur Community Church this morning. Uh, if, you, if you're sitting here and you don't know me, my name is Trent Whitley and I'm a, I'm a pastor here at Sulphur Community Church. And uh, we're going to continue this morning through our series of uh, the crushed head and the bruised heel. And so what you might typically see is, uh, oh man, I'm trying to adjust this little mic real quick. So what, you broke it? <laughs> So, so what you might typically see is those of us at Sulphur Community Church preaching through a particular book of the Bible at a time. So we're going to walk through basically verse by verse, line by line, through a particular book of the Bible. And then when we get done with that, we move on to another book, uh, usually alternating Old Testament, New Testament uh, is what we try to do. But uh, this year, we decided to do something uh, a little bit different, to take a little bit different approach and to walk through God's redemptive story from Genesis all the way to Revelation in one year, in 2020. And so what we're going to be doing is hitting some of the main points. You'll see today that I'm covering four chapters of Scripture, which is a challenge for me. It's something that I, I haven't actually done before. And so it's really, it's really interesting, though, to see the overarching view and the, and the overall view of, of what God is doing and, and, what he's, and what he's doing through his redemptive plan. And so uh, Joey and David have gone ahead of us a little bit and created some guides to help us to dig a little bit deeper into the text that we preach today and into the text that we're going to continue to preach throughout the year. And what these guides do, they just ask a few questions uh, to try to bring out some of the main themes of the text, and as well as some questions to, uh, to apply, so some application questions uh, for yourself, for application and reflection. And what this guide also does is it points you to a story in this uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. So if any of you have not, uh, don't have a copy of this, we actually have, we actually have a few copies in the back. Uh, but it's, it's just a good resource. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones is the writer of that, and she's done a really good job of, of basically using Scripture, using uh, particular passages in Scripture, uh, each one point, showing how that points to Jesus Christ and to his uh, redemption. And so uh, it's a good resource to use uh, with your family. And so uh, at the bottom of each of these guides that you'll see, we have uh, the corresponding story that goes with it through the Jesus Storybook Bible. And so uh, you, you're wondering, okay, if you're new here, you're wondering, okay, how do I get, how do I get those guides? What, what does it take to actually get one of those guides? We actually send out a Sulphur Community Church text message every Sunday afternoon that has the guide attached to it. But there's a few other ways that you can get it. You can go to our website, uh, www.sulfurcommunitychurch.com, and you can go under the resources tab, and under that resources tab, you can actually access it under our current sermon series called The, uh, the Crushed Head and the, Bu- and the Bruised Heel. Or uh, I actually have a few copies with me today, so if you don't have a copy and you can't access it some way, then just uh, you can get with me afterwards, and I'll, uh, I'll get you a copy of that. We'll probably set them on the back table back there. And so um, as we walk through this, uh, David, David started us off a few weeks ago by walking us through the creation narrative. And the creation narrative, in the creation narrative, we see Moses, who, who is ascribed to writing the book of Genesis uh, through divine revelation from God. We see him revealing that God is the only true God. That was his, his purpose in writing that. He's the God who creates from nothing by speaking things into being. 
That's the God that we see. With, with words, he creates light. He separates the skies and the seas. He creates dry land and, and vegetation and the sun and the moon and the stars and all the living creatures and the birds and the animals and the creeping things on the earth. He creates all of them, which brings him to the pinnacle of his creation, and that's mankind. He makes man out of the dust. He forms man out of the dust. And he gives man this dominion over all of the plants and the animals that he has created. So then, in order that man would not be alone, God caused man to to have a deep sleep, and he took man's rib and he created woman. And so that man would not be alone. Now woman and man are in community with one another. And God gave man and woman this perfect home in the Garden of Eden. Where, where community with God was constant. And where man was, was without sin. And God gave man and woman this, this one rule inside of the garden. Do not eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But mankind exchanged this truth, this truth that God has, that mankind exchanged this truth for a lie. So last week we were introduced to the serpent, right? The most crafty of all of the other beasts of the field that God had created. The most crafty one of all, and he deceived woman. He deceived Eve by getting her to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and to share it with her husband. And her husband's just sitting there chilling, just basically letting, letting Eve take on all of this stuff herself, letting Eve be deceived on her own. Her husband just kind of takes that passively. And in the serpent's craftiness, he pulls out the most evil desire of mankind's heart. He pulls out that most evil desire that man has to try to be God. And so as a result, sin enters the world, right? We see sin entering the world. Man and woman feel shame for the first time they try to cover themselves with these with these inadequate coverings of fig leaves uh, that that don't actually provide any type of covering or much covering whatsoever they don't provide any type of protection whatsoever but that but man tries to do that and they hide from the almighty god in the garden and so god brings his curse on mankind because of what they have done so to the woman, he says bearing children is going to be agonizingly painful. And I see, I know a lot of you in this room that kind of resonates with. Uh, her desire shall be contrary to her husband is what God has, has promised, and her husband shall rule over her. And to the man, the ground that you work from is going to be cursed. The, the ground is cursed. You're going to have to labor and sweat and work tirelessly to have the food that you need to even survive. You will get one day's worth of food, and you can, you can get enough to survive on that day, but then you're going to have to work really hard the next day to be able to get that food to survive again. But at the same time that this sin and this death and this destruction are introduced, we also see some, some promises. We see, that, we see God provide, uh, as David just prayed about a few minutes ago, we see God providing that, uh, that covering for man and woman, that more permanent covering where he, where he sheds the blood of an animal, this sacrifice, where he takes that animal and provides a, an adequate covering for man to protect man from the things that are going on. 
And then also we see the curse that the Lord lays on the serpent, the, the curse that the Lord says about the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We know, looking back at this, this is a foretelling of who Jesus Christ is and on what Jesus Christ is going to do. And from this moment, God begins to unfold and to reveal his plan to redeem and to restore mankind. To reverse the curse of the fall that happened on that day. And through the rest of the year, we hope that you get to see this promise just start to unfold right in front of you. And so today we pick up generations after that, generations later, with a story that is very familiar to people, to people that are churched and to people that are unchurched, people that have been involved in church for their entire lives and people who have never walked through the doors. Likely they've heard this story. This story has been a topic of popular debate from scholars. Uh, Many things about this story have been picked apart and debated for years, and it's also been a timeless story for children, a children's story. And it continues to leave kids and adults in amazement as to what goes on here and awe. This is the story of Noah and the flood. And so, as you would imagine, there are some good things that come with that, and there are some challenges that come with preaching through a story like this. Uh, Some of the good things is that I can almost assume that every one of you in here is at least familiar with what goes on in this story from a uh, from at least, you know, a chronological standpoint, what happens in the story. And so it's always easier to communicate something to people when everybody actually kind of has an idea of what's going on. I'm not trying to communicate some random, some, I'm not going to say random, but some text from the book of Obadiah that you don't have any context on, that you don't really understand, and that you've never actually studied before. And so that's a good thing. But at the same time, we have a story that's, that's familiar to us, and so we develop a certain perception of the text that we're reading based on the context in which we read the story, right? And so a lot of us... Uh, for some of us, that was a, a children's story the first time we heard this. And so we always kind of ascribe it to that. And so while I don't think the way the text plays out is, uh, while, while I think it's pretty easy to understand, like a children's story, we're really hurting ourselves if we don't dive a little bit deeper into this narrative and try to understand what's actually going on here. This is not a children's story. This is the most destructive event of all time. This is the most, this is greater than than the Holocaust meets Hurricane Katrina. This is more devastating than any casualties from any other plague or any other disease that's ever happened on this earth. It's more heartbreaking than any any nuclear bomb that's ever been dropped, any more heart-wrenching than any mass genocide that's ever happened. It's more destructive than any natural disaster, any hurricane, any tsunami, cyclone, earthquake, volcanic eruption, anything that has happened on this earth that we have ever experienced. 
This is not just a story that focuses on the, the diversity of the animals coming into the ark two by two that we sing about as, as children. But this is a narrative that communicates the severity of our sin. The evil of our sin. God's grief over our sin. And ultimately the judgment that God poured out on mankind because of our sin. God is just And when he looks upon sin, he has to judge that sin. And so he's going to do it. Let's look at the text starting in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 6, verse 1. That's where we're going to be today. So if you want to open your Bibles there, we'll we'll start there. It says, uh, Genesis 6, verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So let's stop right here for a second. Just like we've already seen, and we are going to see throughout the book of Genesis, I think, uh, pretty much in every turn that we take, uh, we're going to see many topics that have been heavily and passionately debated over the years. And so I don't want to necessarily get bogged down in the details of that today. Uh, the The first one in the text being who were the sons of God, right? And so they talk about... Moses talks about who the sons of God are, and so we can kind of understand who the daughters of man are, but it's kind of difficult to understand what does he mean by, by sons of God. Some would argue that, that these sons of God were, were angels, so they would say that, that the same word that was used here was also used in other particular passages in Job that would, that would specifically and only, you know, basically only refer to angels, and so... Uh, what, what he's trying to communicate here is that angels were actually having relations with humans on the earth, which produced this, this kind of unnatural and unintended union between man and between heavenly beings. And so that was something that God did not want to happen. And so some argue that the, that the sons of God, so some would say that they're angels. Some would say that the sons of God are actually just descendants of Seth, uh, who is Adam's son, uh, kind of the the descendants of Seth would be the chosen ones, the ones of God, and then uh, they had relations with the daughters of Cain or the, the ones, the others of the world, like the, the other people. And so they didn't want, God didn't want that kind of unequally yoked relationship to happen. And so that kind of caused him to be angry. And then others would even say that because the text says that they took any wives that they chose, that sons of God is actually referring to these kings, these, these human kings who were building these, these harems and wanted to practice uh, polygamy and wanted to do all of these, uh, these particular things, which was defiling God's intention for man from the beginning, to become flesh with one wife, and, and, and as we see at the end of Genesis chapter 2, to be one with, with his wife. And so we don't really know who these sons of God are. People have debated this for years, but, uh, but we know that what, what they are doing is saddening God. Because in verse 3, we hear God's response. He says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. 
his days shall be 120 years. So here's this, this striking similarity, similarity that we have to Genesis 3 that we see coming up again. So in Genesis 3, man believes this lie. He believes this lie that he can be like God if he eats of the fruit of the tree, right? We saw that last week. And in the same way, in Genesis 6, man believes this lie that if he circumvents God's natural order, God's natural order for, uh, for relations on this earth, other than what God intended, he can somehow obtain eternal life for himself, apart from God. So Genesis 3 and Genesis 6, man is trying to dethrone God. And so what man is searching for in, in these things, apart from the way that God intended, when, when our desires lead us to do things apart from God's law that is written on our hearts, when our desires try to take us away from that, it's because we are desperately trying to enthrone ourselves on the throne. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, God, you are not good enough for us. You are not a good enough king. We are trying to enthrone ourselves. And so then jumping back into, into verse 4, uh, we see what gets like a, a, a pretty random thought about the Nephilim. Who are the Nephilim? What's going on with that? Is, this sentence, uh, is the sentence that's following that referring to them as the mighty men of old? Are they the, are they the mighty men of old? Or is that sentence referring to the children that are born from the sons of God and the daughters of man that we just talked about? What's going on there? How is that happening? Uh, these are all really good things to study and to try to, and to, try to look at and to try to, to try to figure out. But unfortunately, it's, it's not something that we can really spend a whole lot of time on today. Uh, so uh, thankfully, we get this, this summary statement from Moses in verse 5 that kind, of, that kind of allows us to see the condition of man's heart in the days that were leading up to the flood. And so we get this, this summary statement from God. It's uh, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So now in a matter of, of six chapters, remember, Genesis chapter 1, God's, or after Genesis chapter 1, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Six chapters later, we go to the very opposite. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God gives this general statement about man's evil, right? He says that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It was a, it was a great wickedness that was going on. But then he zooms in on this very specific synopsis of just how bad things have gotten. Just how bad this condition is. Man's heart in this verse is considered, uh, so, so man's heart, when, when we're talking about man's heart, it's the, it's the center of everything that, that these people would talk about. It's the center of everything that goes on within man. And so it's the place where his intentions and his thoughts and his actions just kind of flow out of. And what was coming out of the heart was pure evil and only evil all the time. You see how all of those are placed together so that we can understand just how bad this situation is and how terrible man's heart is. So we have now seen the full effects of the fall of man and our total 
complete depravity, man's complete depravity is put completely on display when God says this. And so God responds to this, right? And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So we see God about to display his judgment here. Because of man's sin, because of what is going on, God is grieved deeply. And he is going to display his judgment upon mankind. And this, this decision based on man's sin, based on what we see from man's sin here, it grieves God. And this is not, uh, I, just, I want you to see a little bit more about this. This isn't just like some passive uh, sadness that God has. This isn't like us going to a funeral and, and crying about someone that, that's been lost or us being really upset about what's going on. But this, uh, translated in another way from the original Hebrew, would mean that he felt bitterly indignant. That was, that's kind of the, the term that's being used here. And so he's bitterly indignant toward these people, meaning that God's feelings toward man at this time, it was more of a mixture of, of rage and bitter anguish toward man. So this is God's reaction to, to our sin, to the sin that we, that we have on a daily basis. God has, God has rage and bitter anguish toward these people, and he doesn't take a, a passive approach and hope that, that this gets better. Our sin leaves God in outrage. We are trying to dethrone him from his throne with our sin, right? And like the good king that he is, he is not going to take kindly to it. He will destroy and attack sin. So in verse 7, again, it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so at this point in the narrative, we're introduced to Noah. And we see this, this destruction and this salvation start to come up. And we, we'll see them side by side through the rest of the narrative. But we see this, this small hint of salvation starting to come up through the story. We find out that Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That's what verse 9 says. And it also says that he walked with God. By the way, walking with God was only attributed to Enoch before this, who we know is uh, someone who walked with God and then was no more. So basically what we understand from that is that he didn't experience physical death because of his relationship with God, because he walked with God. And so Noah is the only one after that that is, or well, the only one up to this point after that that was uh, attributed that walking with God, this closeness with God. Um, but also, uh, blameless and righteous doesn't mean sinless. And so, I don't want you thinking that Noah was a, a perfect person. We'll see in just a little while that that's definitely not the case. But what blameless or or righteous means in the Old Testament is one who agrees with God that his sins are inherently evil. One who would, would agree with God on that and desires to turn away from their sins. They mourn over their sins. They're frustrated over their sins and they want to get away from them. 
And so that pleases God that Noah is a, is a righteous man or a blameless man. And so at the same time God brings destruction, God is not going to p- completely start over. He's not abandoning, abandoning his plan altogether. But he, instead, he brings salvation to a small group of people, to a small group of people who, who trust in him and who walk with him. And so we know the story right? We know, we know the story of Noah. God tells Noah to build, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to build an ark to, to hold him and his family and two of every type of animal and every sort of food that he could possibly gather. And so God tells him in verse 17, he says, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which, in which is the breath of, breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So God's thought this, thought about this to himself, and now he tells Noah this. Everything that is on the earth shall die. This is destruction, complete and total destruction. And then the promise, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Then God goes on and tells him about all the animals and the food that he's going to bring in, and then Moses tells us, Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. And so we know, from the, uh, we know that, that Noah did what God commanded him because he believed God, right? Because he believed that God was doing what he said. And we, and we know that from uh, Hebrews chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 6, when it says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. And then it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for, saving, for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah had faith in God. Noah had faith that God would come through on his promises because God's speaking is God's doing. Because when God says that he's going to do something, he does it every time. So as you see in chapter 7, God tells Noah and his family to enter the ark. God shuts his family in, and then the flood begins. So we're told that the flood continues for 40 days until it was high enough that the mountains in that particular area were even covered by water. And uh, I started to do a little bit of research because I'm kind of a mountain nerd like David is. Um, those mountains were said to have been 17,000 feet in that area. That was the estimate of those mountains. So if you're looking at a, a mountain like Breckenridge that's 13,000 feet, that is 4,000 feet underwater. That's the type of, uh, the amount of water that we're talking about here, just to kind of, to give you a purpose. The highest place I've ever been on this earth is Breckenridge, and it, was 4, 000, it would have been 4,000 feet underwater. So anyway, uh, so we're told that this flood continues for 40 days until it was high enough that the mountains were covered by water. And at the same time, God has accomplished his purposes. At this time, he has done what he has set out to do, and that is to destroy all of mankind, sparing Noah and his, and his family. To destroy all of mankind and everything else that's on the earth, sorry. And so what we see is that in creation, 
God created this order, this, this structure, uh, from complete chaos. And now, through the flood, God has taken the order that he created and turned it again into complete and total chaos. And so everything from the face of the earth is, is destroyed at this point. But, in chapter 8, verse 1, we see something else. We see that God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So God didn't forget about Noah. But this is not just a, it's not just a thought in God's mind that he's going through. He didn't just, he didn't just think and, and remember Noah. What this, is, what this is saying is, and this is the first time of, uh, that Moses gives an account of God remembering someone, but it won't be the last. But, I, but I, what I want you to see is that God's remembering is his actually doing something. When God remembers Noah, it means that he is going to do something to bring Noah closer to himself and to bring Noah into salvation. And so when God remembers something in Scripture... Uh, he hasn't forgotten them, but at the same time, it tells us that he's doing something on their behalf. And so God, God doesn't leave Noah just floating in the boat, but he, cl- he causes a wind to push up on them, to push them onto dry land and to, and to allow the waters to evaporate so that the waters will go down. So the waters begin to recede. The ark comes to rest on uh, Ararat, I believe I'm saying that right, the mountain. And then Noah starts to send out ravens and doves and uh, animals to, to see if the water has completely receded. And so and then finally, the second time, he sends the dove out to check and see if the, land, uh, if the land has recovered yet, the dove doesn't return. So we know that the waters have receded to a point to where at least the dove could go and land on a tree somewhere or... Uh, and enough to be able to see trees at least. So the waters have almost fully receded at this point. And then we pick up in uh, chapter 8, verse 13. It says, In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. God, in his grace and in his providence, because he loves Noah, has rescued Noah and his family from the destruction of mankind. God has shown his judgment on mankind, but at the same time has been gracious to Noah, has shown his grace to Noah. He could have destroyed Noah and his family as well, but he has shown graciousness to them. And his command immediately following is be fruitful and multiply on the earth. The same command that we see in Genesis chapter 1. But God not only saves them from destruction. God not only, that would be enough to to praise him and, and to thank him for. But God not only saves them from destruction. He continues to unfold this wonderful covenant with Noah. This promise that he has for Noah and his family. Chapter 8, starting in verse 20, says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord 
and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So this is the first time, this is the first time that we see an altar being built in Scripture. And we see it as a response to God's graciousness in in sparing Noah and his family from the destruction of mankind. And we know that that when Noah sacrificed these these particular parts of these clean animals that he had, and when that that started to smolder and to burn and and started to, to create a smoke... Uh, we know that when God smelled this burnt offering coming from, from this posture of worship that Noah had, coming from this, this wanting to worship him, we hear that he, that he thinks to himself first and then what he says to Noah. So God's going to think to himself, he's going to say something to himself, and then he's going to say something to Noah. He thinks in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What's interesting is what we see is that man's heart has not changed through this entire situation. Man's heart has not suddenly changed into something better. Uh, What we see is that nothing has changed about the natural man after the flood except the fact that God loved Noah's sacrifice and, it was, and that sacrifice was, was pleasing to him. And God has decided to show his patience to mankind from this point forward until Christ comes back, we know. And so that's what we see from the rest of this, but we're going to pick up with this idea again in just a few minutes. We'll go on to more of the promises that God makes uh, for Noah, and then we'll, we'll kind of come back to this, to this statement here. So God promises that he's never going to destroy the inhabitants, of the, the inhabitants of the earth again or the seasons of the earth ever again, that he's going to continue seasons and that he's not going to destroy mankind fully ever again. So he establishes this, this covenant with Noah, uh, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh while its life, that is, its, with its life, sorry, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So what God does here is, is, is really cool, actually. He's basically repeating and restoring his blessings that he gave man in Genesis chapter 1. So he's starting this over again with Noah and his generation. So number one, God reminds Noah that man has the power over the life and death of animals. Man has, has dominion over animals. Even though animals may now be in opposition to mankind since the fall, animals are not, are not completely in, in good relation with us anymore. They're in opposition to us. 
the fear of man is put in these animals so that man can have dominion over them. And God does that, just like before the fall. And number two, that plants are given to man to eat as food. They're given, they're given to man as substance to be able to eat and to be able to survive. Number three, man has this special status above animals in that God created man in his own image. That's what he's reminding them. He says, look, I have created man in my own image. He's, he's renewing this, this understanding with Noah. And then he takes it even a step further by saying that if someone murders man who is created in God's own image, then the punishment is death for that person. The punishment is capital punishment. It's death. And so then God repeats to Noah what he, what he thought to himself earlier, what he, was, what he was thinking to himself. In verse 11, he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so we have this promise. We have this wonderful promise that that from the last day of the flood forward, that God has promised to show his overall patience with mankind and never resolve to destroy all creation again as long as the earth exists. And so this rainbow that shows up during or after every rainstorm serves as this symbolic and this constant reminder that God has this promise with Noah and to all generations after him. It's this constant reminder that God will show his patience to mankind as a whole. So a little bit in review, we've we've seen mankind's complete and, and continual evil, right? We've seen, we've seen the condition of mankind's heart. We've seen God's patience with the sin of man actually running out and him pronouncing judgment on man and then judging mankind because of their sin, pouring out wrath. And then we see God's salvation of, of Noah and his family, of those who, who have faith in God and who walk with him. And then we see these beautiful promises, this, this covenant that, that God gives to Noah. But, but we can't just stop there. We can't just, we can't just stop there. We can't, we can't just not do anything with, with that that we have. Uh, we have to consider a little bit bigger picture here. We have, to, we have to zoom out a little bit and try to understand what this bigger picture is. Let's go back to chapter 8, uh, verse 21, if you want to flip there with me. Chapter 8, verse 21 says, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. We talked about this earlier. This was after the flood. So before the flood, we hear that every intention of man's heart was only evil continuously, right? And then after 
all of this death and destruction, after all of these things that God's done, then the intention of man's heart is still evil from his youth. Right? So we don't see much of a change there. You don't have to go very far to find man's sinfulness after the flood. So chapter 9 ends by Noah planting a vineyard. Noah, Noah goes out after the flood. He plants a vineyard. He gets the grapes from the vineyard and he makes wine and he gets drunk from that wine and he lays uncovered in his tent. And so his son Ham comes in and instead of, instead of covering up his dad, instead of covering him in his shame, he goes and gossips about it to his brothers. And so it ends up bringing on a curse of, of Ham and his descendants and then you know, Noah's sin was, was seen and was evident right after the flood. And so we see all of these things, this sin and this shame and this evil still prevails after the flood. It still goes on after the flood. So what? What does that mean? Did God not accomplish his purposes because evil wasn't eradicated by the flood? Did God not completely accomplish what he was trying to accomplish with the flood? Did he mess up because we see thousands of years of evil following that? We see the, the sinful desires of our own hearts every day. Did God mess something up with that? No. And just maybe the entire purpose of the flood wasn't that simple. Maybe it wasn't that just the flood itself. Maybe God's intention was not, uh, was not to just completely destroy sin once and for all. What if the story of the destruction of the flood and what if the story of God's plan of salvation for Noah was only foreshadowing a greater story of redemption? Was only pointing to a greater story that was coming a story where God's rage and his anguish toward man and toward man's sinfulness, where it wasn't poured out on us as the sinners, but on someone who was sinless, upon someone who had not sinned and who never sinned. A story where God himself sent his only son from heaven to live this perfect life on earth as a, as a suffering servant, to be tempted but never to sin, to be persecuted and scorned, and mocked, and ultimately to be put to death by being hung on a tree. God's covenant with Noah was in response to this pleasing sacrifice of clean animals. We saw that earlier. God's, God's covenant with Noah was in, in response to this. And the new covenant that we now live under today is established by the sacrifice of God's pure and holy Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's the covenant that we live under today. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 26 through 27 would say, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's what we, we see through Scripture here. So instead of God's wrath being poured out on the people of old that were drowned by the flood, God poured his wrath out on his Son so that we might be saved through him, so that we might be reconciled to him. And so the call today is to believe upon Christ. When we look at the flood, the call is to believe 
upon Christ, to know who Christ says he is, to believe that his sacrifice on the cross has the power to atone for our sins and to repent of our sin and turn to the one who can and who will satisfy us on the, more than anything on this earth could ever possibly satisfy us. That is the call today from the story of Noah. And also heed this warning. Do not mistake God's patience with saving grace. Do not mistake that. If you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ for salvation, if you are here today and you have not placed your faith in him, I can guarantee you that there is destruction much worse than the destruction caused by the flood that is coming for you. Apart from Christ, there is only eternal destruction waiting for you. And it pains me to say that, but it's true. There is only eternal condemnation that is waiting for you apart from Christ. Second Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, it kind of connects the story of the flood with this, with this final day of judgment that we're talking about. Uh, it talks about the scoffers, the, the people who are, who are mocking that Christ will come back, people that will say, oh, you're, you're, not, you're not telling the truth. This Christ, it, it, that stuff is made up. Those are, those are the scoffers that, that Second Peter chapter 3 is referring to. And it says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Talking about the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Those who do not trust in Christ will be destroyed on the day of judgment. Please place your faith and your hope in the only one through whom we receive salvation, the only one through whom we are saved, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Father, uh, we thank you. God, we thank you that, that you show us a, such an ugly picture of man's heart so that we can understand where we are, that if we, if we feel like we're led astray in any way in, in trying to think that we're better than we are, that Lord, that you would show us that our hearts are really dark and really evil apart from you. God, would you help us come to the realization that you destroy sin. That you are not passive towards sin. That you are not indifferent towards sin. But that you hate sin. And God, because you hate sin, and because Christ lives within us, would you allow us to turn away from the sins that are binding us? Would you allow us to draw near to Jesus Christ, who in his kindness and in his graciousness has brought us into a new family where we don't have to, to live according to those sinful desires that we have in the past. 
We don't have to be bound by the things that are continuously pointing us toward evil, but instead we can pursue righteousness. And we know that that stems from only being righteous because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for salvation that you show us clearly through the story of Noah. And we thank you that it points to a greater Redeemer, a greater Noah, Jesus Christ. And we pray that today, as we meditate on Him, and as we think about Him, and as we worship Him, that our worship would be pleasing to you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness that even when even when we feel inadequate, even when we feel not able to approach you, that God, you welcome us in and you allow us to be a part of what you're doing. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. The atonement for our sins, the propitiation, the one who stood in our place. Let us praise him today. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.